I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Stephen Hicks has preached to the faithful at the Shaw Baptist Chapel in the tiny town of Shaw, Colorado, for nearly two decades. Like his congregants, Steve's life has had its share of ups and downs. Even though he never drank, in his early 30s he nearly died from cirrhosis of the liver. In this episode, Steve shares with us what he learned from that hardship and how it has informed the way he relates to others as a preacher, husband, father, and friend. So on the, on the way home, I'm starting to uh, tell my wife funeral arrangements, uh, songs that I might like, and she started crying, and I started crying, and we ended up having to pull over uh, because we couldn't, neither one of us could see to drive, and uh, it was tough. It was really hard, and you know, you really don't think about it until a doctor tells you you got six months to live. I'm breaking from our regular format to provide some context for my conversation with Steve, because religion is a subject that goes to the core of who we are and how we look at the world. About 65% of Americans call themselves Christians, but this is down 12% from just a decade ago. While the ranks of Americans calling themselves unaffiliated grew, not surprisingly, by 12%. The drop-off was greater for Protestants than for Catholics or other sects. At the same time, Americans calling themselves atheists only comprise a small percentage of the pie, 4% to be exact, which means that religion involving a deity or God or religion in general is still a part of the vast majority of Americans' lives. As a matter of record for this and future episodes, I fall into the unaffiliated group. I just haven't made up my mind yet. And as we discuss matters of faith on this show... Our mission is not to promote or proselytize, but to simply get to know each other better. Tell us about your hometown. Well, I grew up in Rocky Ford, Colorado. Uh, Started going to school there in fifth grade, all the way up through high school. Uh, Mom and dad lived there, and they both passed away since, since then, and and I tried to move away a couple of times, met my wife, Laura, there in high school, and we got married in 1989, had three kids, and now we have, uh, let's see, five grandchildren, one in heaven because she just was born way too early, but uh, the rest of them are alive and healthy and doing well. When you were graduating from high school, what did you hope to do with your life? Uh, you know, I always felt like I was called to be a preacher started at the age of 16. I started filling in at my own church. On Wednesday nights when the pastor was needing somebody, I would fill in for him on those nights and uh, until I got a little bit better. Then I was able to fill in for him on Sundays. Then I was able to go to different churches after that and help fill in for different uh, preachers at that time. And so when I first got out, I went on a singing tour group and had a I had a fun time with them, was there for about a year and a half. We traveled all over the United States and Canada. I was the sound man. I couldn't sing at that point, or at least I couldn't sing harmony. So I didn't I didn't do that. And then after that, I went to school 
to be a preacher, and I started off at what is now called Colorado Christian University. But at that time, it was called Christ, uh, Colorado Baptist University in uh, Denver. And I went there for a few years, got married, kind of got away from school and started having kids, and went to Wayland Baptist University in Texas, Plainview, Texas. Started there again. Never did graduate, but I did go to seminary, and I graduated in 1999 with uh, my, uh, my, uh, my biblical studies degree. I can have a master's if I go back and finish my earlier education, get a BA or a BS degree. What did hearing the calling to preach feel like? How I felt that I was led to be the be a preacher is just deep down in my heart, I knew that, that God had called me to, to this particular job. Uh, I had read scriptures where it talks about being a preacher, you're held to a higher accountability. And so I really prayed about it really hard. Is this something I really want to do? And uh, the feeling never went away. So I decided, well, might as well start going to school then if that's what we're going to do. So that's what we did. Is there a born-again tradition in your church and in your experience? Yes, yes. Uh, I uh, preach in a Southern Baptist church, and so, yeah, we, we do acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as it lays it out in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Well, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. I was actually uh, born again when I was seven years old, so I was a little bitty guy. I went to church, and I still remember... Um, I don't remember exactly what the preacher was talking about, but I did know that uh, there was two places, heaven and hell, and I was going to one. So I asked my dad that night which one I was going to, and he said, well, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And I said, no, I guess not, because I don't understand what you're talking about. And he began to explain it to me. And at that point, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit entered into me at that, that very minute, as we call it, asking Jesus into our heart. But it wasn't until later that I really kind of started to figure that out, understand that more in depth, and began to understand. And uh, since then, I yeah, I know the Holy Spirit is with me. He's with me all the time. And, uh, you know, he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. And I understand it better today than I did when I was seven. Sure, like a lot of things. Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. When did you meet your wife and start a family? I met my wife in fifth grade. We were really good friends, went to the same church, went to the same school. Throughout high school, I would ask her out from time to time, but she always said no. I was stuck in the friend zone, if you know what I mean. And it wasn't until after actually high school uh, when I did ask her out, and she finally said yes, and uh, we started dating then. And then I lost track of her for a period of time, for about a year. Uh, and when I got back with her again, she was pregnant with... Um, our little daughter, which, uh, I am not the father, but she is my daughter. I raised her, and we got married in 1989, and my daughter was born in 89. So she was born in June. We got married in December. So I raised her. She's she's my daughter. And then we had two other sons starting in 1991, and then again in 1994, two boys. And that's all she wrote for us. During that time when you were a young father and husband, were you preaching? I've been preaching. I've been filling in different churches, uh, depending on where we were at at the time. Uh, but when we went to Texas, I did a little bit there. And then when we moved back, that's when I really started in on and filling in for different preachers that needed a break. We're going on vacation, missing a Sunday, whatever. 
uh, and I couldn't seem to get a job at a church, uh, per se, like a preaching job, so I decided to go to seminary, and so I did that, went to seminary, graduated, and that's when I started at Shaw Baptist University, or uh, Shaw Baptist Chapel, excuse me, <laughs> CBU, good grief, and uh, I've been there 19 years, I haven't left yet, so it's been good, it's been a, a good little church when I got there, uh, everybody quit on me, I think they kind of they had their pastor, and then when he left, a lot of them left, and there was only two people left. It kind of scared me. I was wondering if I'd, uh, if I heard God right. <laughs> so it was the five of us and two of them, and, and but we've grown it back, and now we run about 45 or thereabouts on a given Sunday, and we're doing well. When did you first notice there was something wrong with your health? Uh, when I first got up to seminary in 1997, we all kind of got sick at the same time. It was like a fluish sick, but I was throwing up blood. And you know, finally went to the doctor to figure out what was going on. And they, they thought bleeding ulcer. So they stuck a tube down my nose and down into my stomach and then realized that it's my esophagus was bleeding. And uh, so they did more tests and found out that I had a bad liver. It's called cirrhosis of the liver. And I tried to convince them that I never drank, never did any of that. And uh, it took me a while to finally convince them. And once I did, they took me up to Denver Hospital University there. And they realized I had a genetic problem. And it's called genetic hepatic fibrosis of the liver. Basically, I was born with a bad liver and it was it was going to have to be transplanted. And I was still going to school during this time through 97 through 99. I graduated in, in December of 99, but I got my transplant February the 3rd, 2000. So it was kind of tricky for us. I was working full-time as an assistant manager I had a grocery store. We had young kids at the time. Wife was staying home with the kids. I was going to school full-time and sick, pretty sick. It was awful, but uh, we got through it, and with God's help, there'd be no way I could do it on my own. How did the news hit you when you first heard you needed a transplant? You know, it, it, it took a minute, it took a few days to kind of let it sink in. We'd been to Denver a couple of times, and he was telling me about what we needed to do and everything. He he gave me about three years to, to live, and at one point, it got to the point he told me I had about six months to live. And then that's when it's really kicked in when he told me I had six months. My wife and I were heading on home. The kids never went with us. They were they were young, and so we didn't feel like they needed to come along with us. They knew what was going on, but they didn't go with us. So on the, on the way home, I'm starting to uh, tell my wife funeral arrangements, uh, songs that I might like. And she started crying, and I started crying, and we ended up having to pull over uh, because we couldn't, <laughs> one of us could see to drive. And uh, it was tough. It was really hard. And, you know, you really don't think about it until a doctor tells you you got six months to live. And I wasn't getting on any kind of uh, transplant. I was on the list, but my name was so far down at the bottom of it that it, there was so many ahead of me that it wasn't looking like I was going to get to get a liver transplant. Uh, so then they offered me the program to get my own person who would give me a liver transplant. And I didn't know how to do that. How do you do that? So Chris, buddy, pal, <laughs> want to give me half your liver? I mean, how do you ask that? So all I did was I went to our church at the time and I just asked for prayer 
And my family all stepped up, but none of them had the right levels and different blood types and all that. I am O negative, and so I need O negative. And so I found this guy at church. He came up to me afterwards, and he says, I want to I wanna give you my half of my liver. And I told him he needed to pray about it for at least a week and talk to his family because it was going to be a big, big to-do because it was going to take us both six months to get back into operations again. He worked full-time as an officer as the prison. So I told him, hey, you need to really look at this and really find out this is what you want to do. He came back a week later. He said, this is what I want to do. And what happened was in January, this is in November when this all transpired, of uh, 1999. So he went to the doctor's blood test, everything came out. Uh, they were. They said, we were such a close, close match. It's a wonder we're not brothers. And I told him, we're brothers in Christ. And he was able to give me half his liver. And I'm still alive today because of of him. His name is Joel Westbrook. And he, we still keep in touch. Every February 3rd, I reach out to him and tell him again, I appreciate so much what he did for me. I've heard people who have transplants kind of feel a part of that person in them. Did you experience anything like that? Yeah, there? definitely. Definitely. You know, I, first thing I, I noticed is when I first uh, got well enough to, to get out of bed and do things, like we were both in the hospital for golly, about a month, I guess. Uh, I started craving Mountain Dew. I, I like Mountain Dew fine, but my, my go-to soda is Pepsi. And I was like, what in the world? And uh, I told the told the guy that gave me half his liver we were in the same room and i told him, man i'm craving mountain dew and he said you know what that's my favorite drink so maybe maybe it was maybe it wasn't i don't know but uh it sure seemed like an odd coincidence to me i have to ask did any of that experience lead to any kind of doubt in your faith uh you know not really i always i always knew that i was a christian that when i died i was going to go to heaven I didn't want to die. There was a couple of times when uh, we went, my wife and I uh, made the trip down from Westcliff, Colorado, down to Pueblo, uh, and laid in the back of, a, of our van. We took the seats out, and I just laid down, and I was so sick, and uh, my, my temperature was so high that I was praying to God that if this is it, you go ahead and take me. And I didn't hear him audibly, but I heard him in my heart, and he says, not yet, we're not done yet. But it didn't get well right away. It it I ended up going to the hospital, and they poked and prodded me and everything else, and finally got me well enough to go back home. But no, I always knew that if this was it for me, that God was going to take care of my family, and then I'd be in heaven. How did your wife Laura help you through all that? Oh, my goodness. You know, I've always said, and I continue to say until I'm dead and gone, that she was my rock. She hung with me the whole time. Uh, there have been many a times when you get into a, a liver situation, your sugars are not broke down by your liver, and it, so it just feeds your brain raw sugars, and you get real mean. I'm not a real mean person. I'm I'm pretty even even killed and comical at times, or I think I'm funny. Uh, but she uh, she had to deal with that. That I was I was not kind. Uh, I was not I was mean. Uh, and I seen a lot of people that were in my boat. Every time we'd go to the doctor's office, you'd see a man and a wife, 
And then pretty soon you just see the man with somebody else uh, because they got a divorce or they're in the process of separating or something because of that. My wife hung in there every time and all the way she made it through with me. And I can't imagine getting through it without her. Yeah, it never really occurred to me that the physiological issues with something like that would feed the mental. I'd forget things. I, I would be angry and be angry at myself, and I didn't even know why. It was it was the goofiest thing. You couldn't control it. Like sometimes you can tell yourself calm down, and you you can do it, but uh, boy, I just couldn't. I get in those get in those rages, and, and I never hurt anybody physically, but I did emotionally with my words. Yeah, it was a tough time for all of us. All of us had a tough time with that. Yeah. And I remember yeah. all that. I remember it very clearly. Everything I said, everything I did, there was no way I could control it. How does the memory of that make you who you are today? Yeah, it it you know, it really makes me stop and and think about the words I want to use, how I want to say it instead of just blurting it out because I did an awful lot of damage as far as uh, emotional hurting my kids and my wife at the same time. Uh, now, when I go to speak, especially to my family and my loved ones, I, I really take the time to try and figure out what am I going to say, how am I going to say it, because of that, because of that right there, because I couldn't control my tongue back then. I want to talk more about your job as a grief counselor in a minute. Yeah. So one thing you probably don't know about me is I was once a high school principal. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'll be darned. And, um, you know, one thing I experienced in that job was I dealt with student behavior all day. And then when I came home, I found myself really short and strict with my own kids. My question for you is, where do you turn off the role of minister and just be dad? Because you have a responsibility for a flock, and the flock includes your own family. How do you balance that? Exactly. Exactly right. Matter of fact, I did take a class in um, college and then another class in seminary. It was just a one-day class, but it, it was all about learning to turn it off, leave work at or church at church, and take care of your family. Learn to say no. It doesn't mean that when somebody calls and they absolutely got to have me, that I absolutely got to go that my family comes first. And that has been a tricky part because of who I am. I am one of these peoples that I want you to like me, number one, and then I'll do just about anything for you just so that you will like me. And that has caused some issues over the years. And I have had to learn to say, I need you to be here. No, I'll send somebody else. I'll be there when I can get there because right now, you know, we're sitting down to dinner, for instance or we're getting ready to go do something with the family, as a family. And, you know, if it was an emergency, well, absolutely. But, uh, you know, most of the time they call you, they think it's an emergency, but it's really not. It's not a huge emergency. Once sure. they calm down, they realize that, oh, yeah, okay, I'm good. <laughs> you know, they were just emotional at that very minute. And what about the interactions with your own children? When they come to you, where do you draw the line between minister and dad? <laughs> well, you know, I try. I do try. I try to talk to my kids. Uh, you know, I don't want to just 
spout to them Bible verses and thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And so, yeah, I try to be a dad. I try to talk to them about whatever they want to talk about and, you know, and try to, to be that, that the person they need me to be for them as anybody can spout off verses to somebody, but it takes a, a father or a dad to really connect with your kids and help them understand that I do care. sounds like you really have two jobs. One is preaching and the other is working with families who've lost loved ones. What does that second job entail? I'm the chaplain for Arkansas Valley Hospice here in La Junta, and then I'm also the bereavement coordinator. So what that means is before the person dies, I'm the chaplain to that person that's dying. But I'm also the bereavement coordinator for those that are watching their family member die. Once that person dies, I switch hats and become the bereavement coordinator, and I follow these people for the next 13 months. I call them every other month or so. I send them materials on grief, and I offer different kinds of grief classes and grief groups that they are they can come to. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be a part of hospice to even come. You just come. We're in the middle of one right now. It's an eight-week course. And I meet every Sunday night, and I believe there's only one person from hospice, the other from the community. But, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing. That's what I do. I, I try to help them through the grieving process because everybody thinks that, well, after the funeral, you ought to be done. Well, that's not even true. It can take up to six months to a year or even longer than that. As a matter of fact, I've been told because I don't, I've never lost anybody. I've lost my parents, and obviously that's sad. But I've never lost, say, a a wife. Uh, not yet. And so, you know, I can't really say how long I would grieve for them. But these people say that the first year is hard because that's your first year of firsts, your first Christmas without them, birthday, anniversary, all those good holidays without them. And usually, usually your family's pretty good the first year being with you, taking care of you. The second year, everybody goes away. Then you go back to their life, which should be. Uh, now you've got another year of of being without your partner. And they kind of sometimes, not always, but sometimes forget that you are still grieving. And, and some some people, I've got one lady that's coming to our grief class. She's lost her husband five years ago. And she still cries as if it was just yesterday. And so we're helping her through that grief process. Are there certain things you do when, at least on the outside, folks resist your help or counsel? Yeah, definitely. You know, we live in a society now where I might see you at the local grocery store here and I'll say, you know, hey, how you doing? And keep walking. Well, I didn't really mean how you doing, because if I meant that, I'd have stopped and seen how you is doing. You know, we just live in a culture where I'm too busy, but I want to be nice to you. And I, I tell them all the time, don't do that. If you want to ask somebody how they're doing, stop and ask them, because they may tell you. They may not. A lot of times people say, I'm good, and move on. But, uh, you know, you watch the body language, watch their eye movement and really watch them and see if they're really telling you the truth. And what I like to do is those if I see that in them, that they're kind of, you know, just kind of squirming around a little bit, and they say, I'm fine, and, but I can tell they're not, I, I'll say, 
are you really? Are you how how are you really doing? I really care. I really want to know. If they say they're doing fine, then I'll take it. You know, you can't argue with somebody. But usually, they start opening up. They just need to know somebody cares. I want to get your perspective on something that is always on my mind. Okay. It's about small towns. Sure. What do you think is important about your work and your church in the life of a small town? You know, I I enjoy small towns because everybody knows everybody. It's a good thing and a bad thing because everybody knows your business. (laughs) But, you know, when, when somebody's hurting, usually somebody comes by and checks on you, brings a casserole. We still do that around here. You know, bring somebody a dish of food and and, you know, just how you doing? It's a slower pace. And so we do have time to stop and, and chat at Walmart or grocery store or wherever you go. And, you know, and we still wave at each other instead of, you know, I, I got to get here. I got to go here. I got to, you know, whatever. And I don't have time to be looking and checking out anybody else. You know, we have in the little town I live in, we we don't really even have stop signs. We just courtesy drive. If somebody drives up, you um if you haven't stopped in a while, you stop and you let the person by. What are your hopes for your community going forward? Yeah, you know, my hope is we've got three churches right now, and I've been talking, I've been saying to my wife and others that there's really no sense in having three churches, and each one of us are only holding about 45 or less people, and I've always wished we could all come together as one church and maybe even have a big enough church to be able to do something. Uh, So we're in the process of talking about that right now with the other churches. The other two churches are without a pastor. So my hope is that maybe we can all come together and be a community of believers instead of, well, we belong to the Methodist, we belong to the Mennonite, we belong to the Southern Baptist, and rather say, you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, we can come together together. What future do you want for your family that maybe you don't go around talking about it all the time, but that's been on your mind? You know, one of the first things is that uh, we will grow in our Christian walk together and that we will grow old together, you know, and eventually when the time's right for God to take us home, we'll go home. But I also worry about finances because living in a small town, as you know, uh, we don't get paid near as much as some of the bigger cities. Now, I get it, bigger cities, bigger rent, bigger this, bigger that. You know, so it concerns me. We've never owned a home yet. We're in the process of buying my mom and dad's house right now. That's still many months away. We had to go through probate. And so there's that, you know, are we going to be able to afford it? You know, all that good stuff. And then we've got the uh, mandate that's come down. We both work in, uh, I work in a hospice situation. She works in a more of a mental health program, and she's the marketing worker there. And so we're both, you know, trying to decide about the shot. And, uh, you know, we both, we have concerns. on And and so is it going to come down to losing my job? I don't know. Certainly can't uh, afford just working at the church. Uh, it would be great if we could just full-time ministry but we can't we gotta we gotta work outside of that so that's on my mind a lot and if money wasn't an issue what would you do differently if i had all the money in the world i'd do what i want to and then what i would do is i would i would 
do go back to fill in preaching. You know, I preachers need a break. There are some that go on sabbaticals, and that, I think that is such a wonderful thing that their church is able to, to help them out with. Our church is not able to do that, and hardly ever do I take a vacation. If it is, I go Monday through Saturday because i got to be back for Sunday because I can't find anybody to preach for me. You know, if I had my could do what I wanted to, that's what I would do. That's what I'd do. I'd teach and preach God's Word and wherever they'd let me come. I want to thank Stephen Hicks for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at www.storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller.